This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm the paper's Asia columnist and an associate editor. This series of podcasts focuses on issues relevant to Asia and distills experience from my decades of covering the Asian continent. In this episode, which is recorded just ahead of this year's Shangri-La Dialogue, I speak with James Crabtree, Executive Director for Asia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, which organizes the dialogue in Singapore. James is a former journalist and policy analyst, and his last job was at the Likuan New School of Public Policy, where he was Associate Professor of Practice. James, it's a pleasure to have you on Speaking of Asia. Nice to be here, Ravi. James, it's nice that we'll be meeting in person at the Shangri-La Dialogue after a gap of uh, two years. In these two years, in what ways has the security situation changed around Asia? Well, I suppose the big thing to look out for at the Shangri-La Dialogue is that the security situation between the US and China has got even worse than it was before. So in 2019, um, as your listeners will remember, this was the Trump administration. We had the trade war all sorts of back and forth between Beijing and Washington. Since then, under President Biden, things I think have got even more testy between the two superpowers. One of the things about the Shangri-La Dialogue is that we have uh, the US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the Chinese Minister of Defense uh, Wei Feng Ha both speaking at the event. So it's one of the rare moments in the calendar where you have two uh, leading US and Chinese figures um, meeting in public uh, to give speeches that contrast with one another. So I think uh, that will be something that a lot of those uh, attending the dialogue and watching out there in the world will be looking out for. Now, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February is now generally seen as having been uh, clumsy and poorly executed. But yet, uh, Russia controls a fifth of Ukraine and large parts of its most fertile and industrialized lands. James, what lessons does this entire Ukraine war hold for Asia? I think the backdrop of Ukraine will be a big part of the the dialogue this year. Uh, We are an event that focuses on security uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. And so, although we have some European countries, it's not going to be the absolute top of everybody's mind. But I think people are looking for these lessons uh, from the, the Euro-Atlantic for the Asia-Pacific, if you, if you see what I mean. Um, there are some very specific consequences from the rise in food and fuel prices. Uh, there are some geostrategic consequences, for instance, the way that uh, the Ukraine crisis has um, solidified and energized the, the West and its friends like Japan, while also pushing Russia and China closer together. And so I think it will be a, a theme that will run throughout the event, um, not just about Ukraine itself, uh, but about the lessons that are being drawn from it for our own region. <laughs> Isn't that perfect timing for a pair of F-16s to fly over my roof, James? <laughs> Do you think Ukraine has divided Asian opinion? I mean, I think it has uh, in the sense that there are some countries like Japan, Korea, and to some extent Singapore that have been quite supportive of the the Western-led coalition to support Ukraine. And and then there are some like China and Russia itself that obviously have not been. And and then there's the middle ground of of those who decided that they didn't have quite the same dog in, in this fight. Uh, so I think it, there certainly has been divisions in the response 
to Ukraine. But I think the, the comparison with Afghanistan is an interesting one. There were a lot of articles written around the time of the Afghan drawdown trying to draw lessons from that for U.S. credibility in Asia. You know, what did this mean for Taiwan and that kind of thing? Most of those articles, I don't think, stood the test of time very well. I'm not sure there were any particular strong lessons from that moment for this. But certainly, if you look at the optics of Ukraine, no more than the optics, the, the reality of it, and I think it reflects much better on the United States, the way that it has handled this, uh, this crisis under the Biden administration, uh, given the, its ability to marshal a coalition, to expand NATO, uh, as I said before, to, to demonstrate its superiority in various domains, um, information, uh, technology, um, all sorts of things. And so I think if you're looking at the United States uh, from this region uh, and you look at the record in Ukraine, then people, I think, will, if not have been impressed, then then will have seen, you know, the, the fact the United States still has very considerable capabilities given its alliance networks um, and its military uh, and that that has been demonstrated in Ukraine. That doesn't mean that the situation is easy. I mean, it, it remains extremely complicated. Um, but I think a lot of what people in this part of the world do is that they, they're looking at a conflict like Ukraine as a signal of the resolve of the United States and its capabilities. And so I think you can draw certain conclusions from that. I'll come back to the U.S. in a second, but uh, I'd like to ask you a bit more about uh, China. Uh, you know, one reads the newspaper reports that uh, Chinese warplanes have been buzzing the Australian uh, P-8 uh, planes over the South China Sea. Uh, and what lessons from Ukraine do you think China is drawing when it comes to both the South China Sea and Taiwan? I think there was an initial reaction. Many analysts thought that China would welcome this contest in Ukraine because it made the life of the Americans difficult and uh, might bog them down in Europe, giving China a freer hand uh, in, in our region. I think that analysis was premature. My guess, and it is only a guess because uh, it is hard to get a, a real weed uh, out of Beijing, but my, my best guess is that China is, is fairly regretful that this happened. Um, it, it didn't want Russia to do something this precipitous. It has created uh, instability in various respects at a time of pivotal political transition in China. It has, for instance, contributed to China's likely much lower growth target at a time at which it's already uh, grappling with how to manage the COVID crisis um, against a very difficult backdrop. And so while this does create some opportunities for Beijing, it also restricts its space for operation. I mean, one obvious example of that was the document on February 4th that was released jointly by Moscow and Beijing, uh, which has become known for the phrase that the two were creating a, quote, partnership without limits. Um, clearly, that partnership without limits is much more limited than it was mm -hmm. a few months ago because of the capability of the Russians being both focused on the war in Ukraine and the fact that the Russian military has been revealed to be far less capable right. than most analysts would previously have assumed. So I, I think China has been careful in the way that it has analyzed this. Um, I think they're still working to understand what the implications would be, working carefully. Um, but I think uh, on, on balance, uh, they would be very cautious about thinking that, that this was a, a positive development for China, uh, given that it, it has created some complications for their planning. Interesting you should say that, uh, James. You know, to just get back to the U.S. for a second, uh, you are going to be hosting the Defense Secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, for the second time, and I think it's just about a year ago that you had him over for the Fullerton speech. Now, we've had some 
very high-level visits to the region, including summits in Seoul and Tokyo by uh, uh, you know President Joe Biden. Uh, Vice President Harris has been here in Singapore. Now, is the U.S. fully back in Asia, and does it need to do more? I mean, I don't think the U.S. ever left. Uh, I think there was a perception in the very early days of the Biden administration that the administration was just not focusing on particularly in, on Southeast Asia, um, but also that kind of temperature, the drumbeat of back and forth with China had deliberately been cooled down a little bit by Biden as opposed to where it was under Trump. So I, I think there has been a concerted effort, particularly in our part of the world, to try and both have presence in the region. And that began with Lloyd Austin, followed by the vice president, and as you say, lots of others. And now in the last month, uh, you've had Biden uh, in Japan, a quad leaders meeting, the launch of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. You know, so there's been lots of stuff coming out of the US. They also had an Indo-Pacific strategy of a sort. Um, and at some point, we're going to see a national security strategy and a national defense strategy. So there's plenty of documents coming out of, of DC. And I think Lloyd Austin's challenge at the Shangri-La Dialogue when he comes to speak is a familiar one, which is that in a sense, he's trying to address um, a number of audiences at once. He has to address the audience in the room uh, in Southeast Asia, which is very cautious, which doesn't particularly like to hear the US being bellicose about China, wants stability and economic growth. He has to address the audience amongst the US allies and partners uh, Japan, Australia, India, some others like the Philippines, who are looking for a tougher U.S. line on China and signals of uh, the U.S. being willing to do more in the region. And then he's trying to address an American domestic audience, which is increasingly a hard line on China and, and is looking for the U.S. to be fairly punchy. And so threading a needle through that is complicated. I mean, that has been uh, the, the challenge that has faced any number of U.S. defense secretaries. It's not a particularly new problem of, of how you address the region from a, a position in Singapore. I think your question, does the U.S. need to do more? There certainly are a lot of question marks um, over the U.S. posture in the region. Uh, it's been talking for an awfully long time about moving military resources here as part of its, you know, the, the old pivot to Asia and the various things that have followed it. It doesn't seem to be happening. There doesn't seem to be much of a drawdown from Afghanistan. The kind of initiatives that they uh, have brought forward have been fairly piecemeal and incremental. And so if you're sitting looking in Delhi or Canberra or Tokyo and wondering, you know, how much um, skin in the game and the Americans going to put into this, particularly as we think about something like Taiwan, you're watching this very carefully. You're watching to see where's the Pentagon spending money? Is it spending more money in our region? Are they moving more capabilities in? Are they going to do more with their, their quote, allies and partners? in the way that they did with AUKUS, perhaps the one initiative under the Biden administration, albeit an Australian idea, not an American one, which has moved the needle on regional capabilities. So there's a lot that people will be looking out for in Lloyd Austin's speech to the Shangri-La Dialogue, a lot of interest in how the Americans are going to manage this. That makes me ask you, do you think a new administration in the US could change things substantially uh, in either direction? I mean, I, I'm sure that they could. I mean, often wise foreign policy heads um, uh, nod sagely and stroke their beards um, when new administrations come along and they like to point to continuity as opposed to change. That that seems to be the, the kind of accepted wisdom that if you can say things haven't changed that very much and foreign policy tends to have continuities, then you're considered to be very um, wise and clever. Uh, but I think it's perfectly clear that the administration under Biden is different in very many important respects from Trump. And if lying behind your question, is the lurking 
uh, possibility that Trump himself could return in 2024, then I think that would also have very uh, dramatic consequences for U.S. posture in the region and the way that people would look at the U.S. So, so yeah, elections do matter. Changes of leadership matter a lot. It's not going to happen for another couple of years. So, in a sense, we have a pause for breath before we have to start thinking about that. But at the back of the mind of every defense minister and every senior official in that room listening to Lloyd Austin is going to be the question of, all right, well, so you might be saying this, but what's going to happen in your election in 2024? This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guest, James Crabtree. Executive Director for Asia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, which organizes the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. What about China itself in these last two years, uh, James? You know, the, we, we, there was a lot of noise about that deal they did with the Solomon Islands last month. But uh, at the same time, Wang Yi doesn't seem to have succeeded in signing that mega security deal with the 10 uh, Pacific Island states. What does that tell you about Chinese power and influence in the uh, Asia-Pacific, or as the U.S. would call it, the Indo-Pacific? I mean, not terribly much, I don't think. Everyone uh, from time to time misjudges a, uh, an offer or, or perhaps um, tries to do something before the ground is quite ready. I'm sure that China will keep pushing to do this, and they may very well succeed. Certainly, if you look at previous large Chinese initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative, they often start small. And then China, when it puts its mind to it, has very considerable resources uh, to, to put towards things. So, um, so yes, I mean, I think the, the, the message of the last few months is China isn't standing still. Um, it is entering a moment of domestic focused political transition in the run up to the party congress um, in the second half of the year. But uh, in important respects, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to move the ball down the pitch, as you might say. So the Solomon Islands was part of that. Wang Yi was also in India trying to work out if there was some way that they could improve their, their rock bottom uh, relations with India, um, albeit without making any obvious concessions to the Indians. So that doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Um, the, the competition in the Southwest Pacific has clearly become a kind of focal point in a way that the South China Sea was during the Obama years when China was building its man-made islands. So, you know, China is a rising power. It is seeking more space for itself on all sorts of dimensions. So institutionally, the way that it's represented in the regional architecture, but also simply in terms of its military posture. Um, and, and so lying behind these deals with uh, the, the island countries is the, the widely held supposition that eventually China uh, would like to have uh, logistics and then military facilities in those in those areas. And you know why wouldn't you want to do that if you're Beijing? The United States has these kind of facilities dotted all around the region. And so, if I was a military planner in Beijing, then I'd certainly want these kind of things. Seems entirely sensible. Um, so yeah, I think it just shows that this is a very dynamic process. This contest uh, between. China and its friends and, and the United States and its partners, particularly the Quad Nations, that um, you know is moving very quickly and is potentially very unstable. Just to talk a bit more about the Quad, James. Now, you have Japan's Prime Minister Kishida as your keynote speaker on Friday, and uh, the Saturday panel is opened by uh, Lloyd Austin. But uh, what about Australia and India? Has the arrival of Anthony Albanese in Canberra changed anything for the court? 
I think the new Australian government provides a moment for a potential reset in various different respects. So not just with China, but for instance, Australia's relations with the French have been terrible since the AUKUS deal uh, in the second half of last year. And so I think the the arrival of a new government and the departure uh, of the French foreign minister and defense minister provide an opportunity to slightly move beyond that. Relations between Canberra and Beijing have been very bad in the aftermath of Australia's. Australia made a number of decisions in particular to call publicly uh, for an investigation into the origin of the COVID pandemic that went down very badly in Beijing. And so there's been all sorts of consequences. I'm not sure that uh, Anthony Albanese is going to change Australian policy uh, with regards to China that much. It's very similar to India that, uh, you know, were China to make substantial concessions uh, then, you know, maybe, but China doesn't seem to be in the mood to make any particular concessions. It makes these light overtures um, in the way that uh, Li Keqiang uh, wrote a congratulatory note in the same way that Wang Yi recently visited um, New Delhi. Uh, but in the end, Australia and, and India respectively uh, want some removal of the respective measures that China has taken against their countries, economic sanctions in Australia's case and incursions into previously accepted territory in the Himalayas in the Indian case. So I would be surprised if there was a substantial improvement in relations uh, between China and those two other quad members in the short term. They are so low that I suppose it is possible that you could have a small improvement. But I think in the end, the divisions between Australia and India and, and, and China, respectively, are now, are now quite structural. And, and I think it's unlikely uh, that you're going to have a weakening of the the quad as one or other of them decides that it's in their interest to um, patch up relations with Beijing. But uh, wouldn't you agree that the Indians are keeping a bit of a low profile in quad? And uh, even for the Shangri-La dialogue, I think uh, I don't see the defense minister or uh, even the chief of Navy uh, in your list. Is that deliberate? Uh, well, you're not going to tempt me into this one. So we don't talk about who's coming until right before the summit. And this is being recorded on the Monday. Uh, and so we have a few days yet before we uh, uh, give our final list of who's coming. But I think um, it would be fair to say that that India, in terms of where it's been paying attention over recent times, has been focusing on building its relations with the West. So if you look at the itinerary of Foreign Minister Jayashankar and indeed um, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, it's had lots of visits to Europe in particular. So there's been a real process of bridge building uh, between Europe and India as India uh, tries to cement that um, relationship. Uh, So, for instance, Prime Minister Narendra Modi recently went to Scandinavia, where he met all of the Scandinavian politicians. And there's barely a European country that Mr. Jayashankar hasn't gone to in recent years, including some of the really teeny tiny ones. Um, So I think an interesting question for the coming period is whether India, which ostensibly uh, has had foreign policies dubbed Act East and and Look East, um, uh, is going to begin to try and do more to expand its influence diplomatically and militarily in Southeast Asia um, in particular, outside of the, the Quad countries, uh, and, and you know that's a, that's an interesting question for the the coming uh, uh, period of the Modi government. James, I recently wrote a column about NATO in Asia, and uh, this morning we have news that Prime Minister Kishida is uh, likely to attend the NATO summit in Madrid. Isn't Asian NATO or something close to it possible someday? I think it's reasonably unlikely. I mean, never say never in these circumstances. There was an attempt to create, as you know much better than me, a 
a NATO-like body not long after the Second World War. didn't work very well because of the, the, the sort of power structure of the region. Equally, I'm not sure that the United States really feels it needs a full NATO-style structure uh, in, in this part of the world, even if it felt that it could actually create one. Um, it, it doesn't really feel the need for India to contribute to the defense of Taiwan, for instance. Um, it, it, what it wants India to do is step up and be a leader in its own region in South Asia um, and kind of balance China there. I'm not sure it, it necessarily feels that Australia has much of a dog in the the kind of the Himalayas in the kind of India-China fight. So an Article 5-style NATO treaty in this part of the world would be very hard to create, would create all sorts of divisions. And so I think that the U.S. isn't really going to push for this option. The, the scenario in which it could happen is um, one in which, in a sense, China changes its approach and you know, becomes much more aggressive and particularly militarily aggressive. One of the main consequences, getting back to the, the conversation we were having um, in the beginning about Ukraine, is that Ukraine raised threat perceptions around the region. So suddenly you looked at what happened to Ukraine and you thought, oh, crikey, um, you know, tanks going over a border, that was something we thought wasn't going to happen anymore and now it is happening. So maybe that could happen in our region. I mean, if you look around Southeast Asia, you would have seen many of the defense establishments putting out messages that, you know, in a sense, what Ukraine tells us is that we need to invest in our own strong defense. And so I think that kind of lesson that comes out of this, um, I, I don't think that a NATO-like structure in the absence of, of China taking a much more dramatic and militaristic approach to the region is, is very likely. James, it's a pleasure to have you on Speaking of Asia. Thank you, Ravi. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Ravi Belur. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. And if you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast text below. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. 